All right, well, hey, if you got your Bibles, grab them. Um, we're going to be in Mark 14. That's the passage. Uh, that's the chapter today is Mark 14. You turn there, and I'm going to make my way up here. Eugene Peterson said, the church is a group full of sinners. And if that isn't bad enough, they have a pastor who's a sinner as well. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the place that, that we're at every Sunday when I say, turn in your Bibles to Mark, and we open God's word, and we leap into this sermon, which is why, uh, man, we have to pray. We have to pray. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to receive what we need to receive, the instruction we need to receive from God's word. So would you bow your heads as we lift up our time? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that, that you would meet us here, that you would remove the clutter that clouds our minds right now and illuminate your word in us so that these truths would, they would bring a fresh hope and conviction to our hearts and we might walk away from here with a rejuvenated love for Christ in whose name we pray and together we said amen. Well, our main emphasis this morning is actually going to be on the Lord's Supper. We typically do communion on the second Sunday of the month. We're actually going to be going through a passage that lays out communion for us. So I felt like we, we should do this as we're teaching through it. We should, we should partake again. And that's going to be our main emphasis, um, which Jesus instituted on the night before his death as a way to remember and receive his grace given to guilty sinners by his substitutionary atonement on the cross. Now, what those two long, uh, theologically dense words mean for us are that on the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinners. That's where you get the word substitutionary. He died in place of sinners. And then he satisfied the wrath of a righteous God, which is where we get the word atonement. And he did that to rescue us from death in hell, which we can define as separation from God for all eternity. Wow, Martin, you really know how to keep it light for all of the uh, seekers, you know, out there. Well, I mean, we're not, a ch we're not a church for seekers. We don't really buy that term here, right? The, the kindest thing we can do for those who are seeking something that may resemble God is to speak the truth of God's word because that is the kindest, most gracious thing we can do, not be a fluffy church, right? So we just get right into this. So now, when you hear these words, substitutionary atonement, you can get psyched. Or you can get psyched because it's the heaviest, most glorious news there ever was and ever will be. What it contains, what Christ's death contains for us is equal parts gravity, there's heaviness, right? But it's also gladness because we're free and we're alive now in Christ. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the movie Dunkirk. You know, this new Christopher Nolan film, it's just this awesome film, and what we see, really, I'm not going to give anything away for those of you who haven't seen it, but people are saved in this movie because someone was willing to die. I go too far on that? I think I, think I kept it within the parameters, you still don't know what happened. Um, besides communion, we're also going to focus on two just famously horrible events that some of you will be familiar with, that kind of book and Mark's account here of the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the betrayal of Judas, and then we're going to look at the betrayal of Peter, which again are, are, are equal parts horrifying and hopeful. Horrifying because Judas is a churchgoer and a ministry leader who died in a pool of his own blood. All right? But hopeful because Peter is a churchgoer and a ministry leader as well whose guilt was removed by the blood of Christ. 
which drives us to one of the fundamental questions that this text answers by way of implication, which is this. What do we do with our guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Would you characterize your life today as someone who has a guilty storyline? We just feel like if you were to look into all the cracks of your heart and in your life, it's just filled with guilt about what you should have done, about what you shouldn't have done, the ways that you should have stood up and you stood down, about the things that you knew you could have done that would have extended grace and kindness and you went the other direction. So if I look into the cracks of your life and my life, is it just filled with a sense of guilt and condemnation? Because none of us are exempt from guilt. And I mean, unless, unless we have some serial killers, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the congregation this morning, none of us are exempt from guilt. All of us know that deep down inside, we have not kept God's law. So what do we do then with our guilt? I mean, what, what do we do? What's the solution for us? Do we just double our efforts and try to, try to do better? I mean, do we, do we put a little extra volunteer time into a, into a ministry or a, or a charity? Do, do we just, you know, read five more chapters a week, you know, uh, in, you know, in the Bible? Do we just commit to being a more positive person? Is that really going to alleviate all the cracks in our lives that guilt has created? The dilemma is, what happens when you fall short of those efforts? that we naturally fall into doing? Does life simply turn into an endless cycle of good day, bad day? Because some of you have lives with incredibly guilty storylines. I can speak for that myself. The things I look back on, and when I say look back, don't ever think I'm talking about 20 years ago. I mean, I'm talking about 20 minutes ago, practically. The things that I look back on when I was not who I was supposed to be. Some of that guilt is good. We call that conviction. Some guilt is misplaced. And some of you have a proper guilt, but you have no place to put it. But the rub is that none of it goes away due to any self-removal process on our part. There's nothing we got in and of ourselves that's able to take it away. So that's where we're going to talk about the blood of Christ this morning, because what we know about the blood of Christ, very simply, is that it condemns guilty sinners, but it also saves guilty sinners from their guilt. That's the redemptive and restorative power of Christ's death on the cross. That's why it's everything that we bank everything on here as the church. So with that, let's, let's dive in. Mark chapter 14, we're going to pick up with verse 12. It says this, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, and it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And we're just going to stop right there for now. So as we pick up in verses 12 through 16, we see how the disciples were reminded once again of the divine foreknowledge of Jesus as he, he sends them away, sends two of his boys away to secure an upper room where they would prepare the Passover. Now the Passover was a celebratory feast that commemorated the time when God delivered the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery all the way back in the time of Moses. So in order for the Jewish firstborn sons to be saved, because what was going to happen is on the night before God was setting the Jewish people free, he was going to send an angel to destroy the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. So in order for the Jewish firstborn sons to be saved, they had to slaughter a lamb and they had to mark their doorposts with the blood of the lamb so that the angel of the Lord would pass over and they'd be saved from God's wrath. So of course it's no coincidence that the Passover feast was happening here on the night before Jesus' death since he himself would be slaughtered. He would be the slaughtered lamb to save his chosen people from God's wrath over their sin. But what I want us to do as we get a little deeper into this story is I, I don't want us to miss kind of the, the trauma of the moment. I don't want us to miss the humanity and the emotions and, and some of the heartbreak that's contained in, in the, the passion or the suffering of Jesus as we get to verse 17 and we see the betrayal that Jesus experienced, not by just anybody, but by his closest friends. So as we get to verse 17, once again, we see Jesus reclining and he's eating. This time, again, it's with his 12 closest disciples, men who were among his dearest friends who he'd spent almost every waking hour with over the past three years. Now remember, he had just reclined and eaten with another friend, a guy named Simon the leper. What was different now was that he was sharing a meal with one disciple who would prove to be a friend in name only, and it would be the first time his other disciples would discover this kind of shocking truth. One of you will betray me, Jesus says in verse 18. As you read that line, I mean, can, can you feel the weight of that? You, you can feel the pause. You can feel sort of the awkward silence in the room as the disciples probably jerked their heads up and met Jesus' eyes, wondering if they'd heard him correctly. You ever had an unexpected bomb dropped on you like that, unexpected? Yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of my 
my dad's passing, and uh, I remember the day like it was yesterday. All, all the family was gathered in the waiting room. The doctor said they were working on him. Uh, we were talking about lunch, right? There, there wasn't, a, wasn't a lot of fear in the room. And then the chaplain walked in. He walked over to my mom. Very unexpectedly, he took her hand and said, Jay has died. My dad's name was Jay. Died? Who, I mean, who said anything about death? Like, we had talked to the docs an hour and a half earlier, and they're like, we're working on him. This is looking good. One sentence, and everything changes. One word, and your life is just literally flipped on its head. And so understandably, what, what Jesus says to his friends here, it falls on them like an anvil. Man, it just gets right into the heart of the disciples. Says they become deeply sorrowful in verse 19. Who betrayed Jesus? They wondered. And you can kind of feel the doubt and the uncertainty enter the room as they go down the line one by one and they ask Jesus if they're the one. Me? I don't know. I don't even know myself in this moment, they're thinking. And you kind of get a sense of like the, the, the sickness in their stomachs as their minds started spinning on the thought of betraying. Jesus of all people. And yet we know everyone wasn't sorrowful. And that's significant. Judas knew who the betrayer was because it was him. It was him. One of the 12 band of brothers. Someone who is now sharing an intimate meal with Jesus. And it's funny how, how closely the, the name Judas is tied to the word betrayal. I mean, it's synonymous for us, right? I mean, you can all be pretty sure you're never going to meet a dude named Judas in your lifetime. Or, or Adolf, right? If we just want to keep rolling with that, right? I mean, Judas is never going to make a list of top 10 most popular boys' names. It's just not going to happen. But I think the story of Judas, which we're just getting a slice of here, it should drive us to do a bit of a spiritual diagnostic check on our own hearts because again, and we went through this a little bit last week, Judas was somebody who served Jesus. Judas was somebody who had done a lot of good ministry. I mean, you could go and you could find people with stories about how he ministered to them, the kindness that he had shown them, the impact that he had had on their lives. The disciples never guess that it's Judas after Jesus drops that bomb of betrayal on them. Nobody knows it's him. I mean, look, if I would have had the slightest inkling, I would have been like, him. Nobody saw it coming. I mean, nobody saw that coming. Man, I remember I had this old friend. Man, my brother and I were pretty close in age, and this was a long time ago. And we had this friend, and he was like a brother, and he just had done everything with us. And everywhere we went, everything we did, he was just, he was like our third brother. And uh, man, we, at, at one point, he, he turned on us. And he just went the other way, and he spread all these lies, and he spread all this gossip. He really damaged my brother's and I's life for a period of time. It took me years to get over that, because it was so bitter. It was so unexpected. To this day, I don't have an answer. To this day, I've gone back to this brother, and I've said, what was that? To which he's replied, what was what? 
Betrayal, it just casts things into confusion, into questioning, and ultimately it turns into bitterness. And then Jesus makes an astonishing but sort of gut-wrenching statement in verse 21 when he says this, for the Son of Man goes it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Then he says this crazy line, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Does it strike you like it struck me that Judas could hear those words and be so unaffected? The sad reality was that the heart of Judas had grown so callous. It had grown so hardened to the heart of Jesus. It's a sober reminder for us, I think. It's a sober reminder that eating at the table with Jesus is not what brings you peace and friendship with Jesus. There needs to be more. There needs to be more. And so again, we don't want to lose the mood in the room. Jesus just exposes one of his closest friends. And his other friends are just now cast into doubt and questioning. What's Judas going to do? You know, where, where is he going? I mean, am I understanding this correctly? I mean, imagine the confusion and the unsettledness, the churning of their insides. Jesus, we need answers. And of course, what Jesus does next is provide them with the answer, actually. Maybe you're in a situation like that. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where a trust has been broken. And maybe you find yourself in a marriage that is on the verge of collapse, and it seems like every word that comes out of the other person's mouth feels like just a bitter stab of betrayal. Maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a child, maybe you've got a child that's kind of gone rogue. They've just rejected you, they've turned from you, they've gone the other way, they want distance, they want to build a wall. Maybe a friend, and maybe a friend just gossiped about you, just turned on you unexpectedly, and you don't know why, and you're not finding answers. I mean, there's just not many things more bitter than betrayal. And we think, God, if you could just, like, fix it, if you could just fix it, if you could just tell me how it's going to end, and yet we realize that we don't always get those answers. But we do get an answer. We get an answer to our own betrayal. We get an answer for our own brokenness as we get to verses 22 through 25. And what Jesus does here is he institutes what's called the Lord's Supper, or we call communion in verses 22 through 25. It says he takes the bread, he blesses it, and he says, take. He gives them the bread. This is my body, he says. You need to eat of the bread that I'm giving you. You need to partake of what it is that I'm giving you that is going to symbolize what's going to most nourish your life. He takes a cup, it says, and he gives thanks, and they all drink from it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Takes us back again to that Passover language, the fulfillment of that blood that would mark a person being saved from God's wrath. And then speaking of his imminent death, which again was just a, a, a night away, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
So when we come to the Lord's Supper, what we are doing is we are taking his body and we are drinking his blood with the understanding that his presence is with us in that moment in the same way, but different, that he was with the disciples in the upper room that night. And we are receiving the same grace that eradicates our guilt. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we read this, that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So like the disciples, when we come forward to the table, we are participating in the death of Christ. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, says this about communion. He says, we do not simply remember Christ or rededicate ourselves to Christ in this meal. Rather, he says, Christ gives himself to us as the bread of life. He says this, listen, beyond our powers to comprehend, he says, the spirit communicates Christ to us through these creaturely means of both preaching and sacrament, communion, so that the ascended head of Christ will not be without his body. It's like we're joining together with Christ again as we take of the bread and the cup. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is Jesus bringing together all the races, all the tongues, all the tribes, all the nations. Michael Horton goes on to say, these are all means that convey God's saving grace rather than the methods of our own striving. Judas had methods of his own striving, but the disciples were receiving something that clearly they couldn't provide for themselves. Horton goes on to say, before we serve, we are served. Before we do anything, something is done to and for us. So that's what communion is for us. It's us receiving the grace and the nourishment that could only be provided outside of us for the inside of us. And it's also time for us to look forward, to rejoice, because we know that the Lord is coming. David Mathis writes, here at the table, this is what happens. We hear Jesus' voice. We have our Savior's ear, and we commune with him and others in the body. We receive afresh his gospel. We respond in faith. This is an act of faith. And we knit our hearts together in the bread and cup that we share. And in doing so, he says, we not only look to the past to remember what he's done, and not only to the present and our growing union with him, but also to the future and the full feast to come at his great wedding supper when we look in a a book like Revelation chapter 19. So I'm going to invite the band up now. I'm going to invite our ushers up. Um, And we're going to partake of communion a little bit earlier, a little bit of a different format than we normally do at the very end of the service. Here's something I want to remind ourselves of. Communion, by definition, is not a solitary thing. Nobody's taking communion on their own today. We are participating in Christ's death together and in the promise of his return together. So if you're a believer, man, we get to use this time to repent of our sin but also rejoice in our Savior for removing the stain of guilt from the storylines of our life. That's what this represents. So again, we're going to do something a bit different. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have us partake of communion, and then we're all going to sit down, and we're going to finish our time in verse 26 
through 31, where we will see Jesus call out a second betrayal, um, this time by Peter and the rest of our disciples. So the band is going to sing, we're going to break the bread, and we're all just going to come forward like we always do and partake together. What we just did right there is we received the depths of God's grace for us. And in that moment, as a church body, we were strengthened. We were strengthened together by the presence that we know we have because of Christ's broken body and shed blood. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. Let's see what happened at this time in this account after the disciples had taken communion together for the first time with Jesus. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Just when the disciples think Jesus couldn't possibly have any surprises left, He drops another bomb in verse 27 when he says, you will all now fall away. Wait, right? Like I thought thought he said it was Judas. Now we're all going down? Like that would have been my thought in that moment. But it's night now as they make their way to the Mount of Olives and they get another bleak, apocalyptic declaration from Jesus. Peter, Peter's Peter, right? If there's one thing Peter can't not be, it's Peter. Peter won't receive it. Like he kind of has a habit of doing all through the Gospels. He argues with the creator of the universe. He argues with somebody that at this point in time, you would think whatever Jesus says has like never not come to pass, has never not been true. But Peter kind of still thinks that there's going to be that moment when Jesus opens his mouth and something he says isn't going to pan out, right? So he argues with Jesus in verse 29, assuring him, in fact, even ignoring the prophecy in verse 27, which Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. And I think it was because this was too much to hear, right? I mean, this was too dark. This is too close to home after what had just happened to Judas. But Jesus is insistent in verse 30 as he responds to Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But again, Peter is emphatic, it says. You hear that Peter's swagger sort of welling up in him. I don't care if I have to die, Jesus. Like, you're not getting this. I will not deny you. And then not only that, but at some, you know, it's, at some point, the disciples are standing back, you know, and they're looking at Peter, and they're getting inspired, right? They all do kind of a go team with Peter in verse 31. It says they all said the same. But we all know that it's one thing to say something, isn't it? To intend to do well. You guys have heard the old classic phrase, the road to hell is paved with 
good intentions. And you know, there might be a part of us that, that kind of admires the disciples in this moment too. Because you know, it's, it's a good thing to want to stand, but it's wrong to think you have the feet to stand on in and of yourself. The disciples had never faced what they were about to face. I remember uh, Melissa and I, we do premarital counseling and we, we did a session, this was years ago. And uh, man, this couple, we had this couple, they would not hear a word from us. They would not receive anything. It's, it's not Casey and Justine. This was years ago, I'm not just saying that. Um, they would not hear a word from us, right? Um, they thought their marriage would be completely without conflict. Their marriage was going to be different. They were just kind of yeah, yeah, yang and blah, blah, blahing us to death. And years later, they, they came to us and had a little bit of a different story, not because we know so much, but just because we had lived through it. We'd had 20 years. So it's interesting what we have before us as we get to the end of the text we're going through this morning. We have two betrayals. We have Judas the thief, and then his trusted 11, who we learn in verse 50, if you jump ahead, that all happened, like he said, they all left him and fled. But I think what's important for us to understand, to take from this morning, is that there is a marked difference between Judas and the other disciples. And it's contained as we look down in verse 28. Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's interesting. Interesting what he says. He just kind of slides that in there. He says, I will go before you. Was he talking to Judas? No, he was talking to these brothers who had just taken of his body and his blood and who he knew were going to betray him very shortly. And what we have here from Jesus in verse 28 is this beautiful promise, this beautiful assurance that he gives them. You're all going to fall away, but after I am raised, I will reunite with you. I will come after you. I will go ahead of you. Jesus would never reunite with Judas. He would only go before those who shared in his broken body and shed blood. That's assurance. That's one of the pieces that we go through during our time of singing every week. That's the assurance of a promise Christ makes to all who eat of his body and drink of his blood in faith. Because all of us have betrayed Jesus, right? Our sin, our sin is just cosmic treason, is what it is. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the redemption that Jesus was getting ready to unleash to all those who have faith in him. So Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out for those who confessed their sin and now are freed from their guilt by grace. And Judas was, Judas was there. Judas had spent three years. Judas ate bread with Jesus, but he didn't eat Jesus' body. He didn't drink the innocent blood that he betrayed. Only those who were with Jesus 
it says all drank of it. And again, this was symbolic of what was about to happen on the cross. We must find our life in the body and blood of Christ. There is no other way for our guilt to be removed. His body and his blood fills us and it nourishes us. It's the spiritual version of being satisfied by an amazingly cooked and prepared meal. You guys ever experienced that? If you could follow my Instagram, you're going to see how much I experience that. Like all the time. Because I got this woman who won't stop cooking. Dude, it's hard. I mean, you guys should feel compassion, man. It's hard, right? I'm trying to fit into, the, I'm trying to fit into these things. You know what I'm saying? But it's like that. It's like when you receive an amazingly cooked and prepared meal. And what happens on the heels of that? So if there's a level of satisfaction. Well, how do we do that spiritually? How does that happen to us? And how is our guilt, the stain of our guilt, removed? It's by body and blood being broken and shed. And then you know what we walk away with? We walk away with the same things the disciples would eventually walk away with and take with them into the mission that was before them. Number one was humility. You walk away with humility as you remember. In verse 72, if you go all the way ahead, we're told that Peter broke down and he wept after he denied Jesus. Judas didn't have the same reaction. It's not what happened to Judas. Our sin should drive us to that same brokenness. And it'll be a humility that we carry with us as we remember. And not only just humility as we remember, but gratefulness as we consider. Gratefulness as we consider knowing that even our betrayals are included in Christ's death if we are already his. The betrayals are included. How do we know? They all fell away. But he would go before them. So we have humility as we remember. We have gratefulness as we consider. And finally, we have joy as we anticipate. Because Christ continues to go before us. And the story of the church is that we're following an alive Savior who goes before us, who continues to lead us through those times when it looks to the world like we've fallen away at times. And when we take communion, it's almost as an act of defiant joy against our guilt and shame because we have a Savior who has removed it once and for all. So let me go back to where we started. Do you have a guilty storyline? Do you need a place to put that guilt, that damn guilt that is ever present in all the cracks of your existence? I have guilt, Ronnie. What do I do with it? Well, we got the answer. The cross is the answer for our guilt. It's where our sin is washed. What do we sing about in the beginning? It's where sin is washed white as snow by Christ's blood. It's where the guilty are saved from their guilt. It's where condemnation is replaced with a clear conscience. It's where ongoing repentance leads to lifelong restoration. Why? Because we now have the promise that he will go before us in all things 
for all eternity. So we come before the Lord and we say, take it. And he receives it and he gives us himself and he takes all of those broken puzzle, broken pottery pieces of guilt that are just scattered all over our lives. And he slowly starts putting those pieces back together with the assurance that that guilt has been remedied. Are we always gonna feel like that guilt is gone? We're not. But we always have the same cross to go back to to remind us that whether we feel like it's gone or not, it's gone and it's going. That's the promise and the assurance that we get, that we act out visibly as we come and take the bread and cup. He will go, he has gone, he will continue to go before us, amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the great promise that we get in this passage. You went before the disciples They weren't even sure of what was ahead the next day. They weren't even sure at this point in their story of what you were heading to. They weren't even aware of the cross. And yet you told them after you had risen again, you would go before them. And you are continuing to go before us as a church. You are continuing to take those broken pieces of guilt that characterize many of our lives, Lord. And you are owning those. You are taking those It was your death on the cross that eradicated that guilt that we carry around with us, that stabs us, that shapes us, that causes those sleepless nights, that allows us to second guess everything, that propels us into doubt. Lord, we know that we have consciences that condemn us. And Lord, we also know that we have the spirit inside of us that convicts us. So Lord, we want to do what you've called us to do in those moments when our guilt is shaping, shaping us so radically as we want to come before you. We want to offer it to you. We want to confess it to you. We want to remember our right standing in you. We want to be driven to people that we may need to make amends with, that we may need to repent to, that we may need to attempt to restore relationship with. But we want to be compelled to do those things and engage in those things that you've given us so that we don't hold burdens that you have already relieved us from. So Lord, in obedience, Lord, allow us to think deeply about those areas in our lives that we still feel the infections of guilt in And Lord, let us always be reminded that we have a Savior who removed those stains and we can be white as snow and we have the assurance of a promise that you go before us and that you will take us from these points of doubt and agony and distrust and betrayal. And Lord, you will lead us to glory before you. And that is our hope and our peace. And we thank you for all this. In Christ's name, together we said, amen. Hey, if this is your first time here, um, the messages are usually this heavy um, because that's just kind of the direction we like to go. 
Um, but that doesn't mean we don't smile, and that doesn't mean that, man, we aren't really excited that you're here, and we would love to talk with you, meet you, get a little bit of your story. We have a way to do that. We have our cafe off to your right through those double doors, and we all gather afterwards um, if you're able, and uh, we just like to eat together and hang out, have some coffee, and uh, as an opportunity to continue our, our worship and fellowship and feasting together. So I encourage you uh, to do that. Um, I'm looking at Tim Black, and Tim Black asked me to remind, Tim, can you stand up? The guy with the orange shirt, that's Tim Black. And uh, he is doing a, what are you doing? A part, a, lay it out. He is doing a picnic for everybody that's involved uh, sort of in an administrative role in any of our schools. And he's doing that at his house tonight at Got to help me, man. Five o'clock. Yes. So um, if, you, if, you, if you're in one of those roles and you hadn't heard about this, and this is just an awesome, gracious thing that, uh, that Tim is doing for everybody coming out of the generosity of, of him and Carly's heart. See him. Find out how to do that. You'll be able to connect maybe with, with other teachers that maybe are part of this church that you don't know about, and it would be a good time to hang out in fellowship. Am I right? Did I, did I nail that? Okay, good. Well, let's stand, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give our benediction, and then we'll be out. May the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness, strengthen our hearts by the power of the Spirit to walk in obedience and love for God as a testimony of grace to a weary world. And together we said, amen. Love you guys.